welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 71 for May 2017. I am your co-host, the first, Quinn Dunkey. With me as always is co-host, the second, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? Kansas Fest approaches ever closer i can't wait mm, it it does it's coming very close are you are you all ready for it i am i can't i can't wait to to see the sights and and talk to the people and do the things at the place mm-hmm. where it happens <laughs> yes and sweat my butt <laughs> off yeah it, it does get a bit hot there doesn't it mm, yes. <laughs> if you're from the if you're from um, out west like both quinn and i and and our guests today are um and you're not used to what happens when you go back east it gets a little hot and sticky yeah yeah, whoever settled in Missouri originally did not do it in July because uh, they would have just kept walking, I think. Yep. How are you, Quinn? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I've uh, not done a ton of retro computing lately, but, uh, you know, uh, I've been, what f- few moments I have for it, I have been working on my uh, Kansas Fest uh, presentation. So uh, I really hope it'll get done in time. Uh, I'm sure as all previous years, it will ultimately be finished on the airplane, but uh, that's <laughs> uh, that's okay. <laughs> that's what airplane rides are for, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a decent enough flight. It's four hours from from here, so uh, that's it's a pretty pretty good chunk of time to wrap things up. So, yeah, I had um, I had brunch yesterday with um, Chris Torrance and um, Jim Sammons, uh, whose name you might recognize from uh, mm-hmm. the Soft Talk project, and he was with Muse Software early on, and uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And uh, they said to say hello. So, hello, Quinn. Excellent. Well, hello to both of them as well. We talk about Chris Torrance a lot on this show. Yeah. (laughs) And we should probably have Jim on at some point because he had some, he's got some really great stories that I think people would love to hear. Capital. Well, we've, we'll add to the backlog of people that we uh, love to talk to. There you go. (laughs) And uh, speaking of which, uh, we have a guest uh, lined up today who uh, we've been meaning to talk to for quite a while because he's been doing very fun stuff. We've been talking about him a lot, Mm -hmm. so uh, it's fun to finally get the chance to talk to talk to him. Uh, We are joined today by Michael Packard, who is writing uh, a series of games, the first of which is Alien Downpour, and he started the Facebook group uh, dedicated to uh, that book whose name I can never (laughs) remember, uh, Apple Arcade Game Design. It's Apple Graphics and Arcade Game Design Enthusiasts. It's not (laughs) that hard. Excellent. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Perfect intro. Uh, Welcome to the show, Michael. How are you doing? Hi. How are you doing? Uh, so, uh, yeah, why don't we uh, jump right into the, the stuff that everybody uh, wants to know about first, I'm sure, which is uh, Alien Downpour. Uh, how did you start with that, and where did that come from, and, and how are things uh, progressing? Um, it actually started as a, as a tech demo. I, um, last year, I decided to, when, right around Kansas Fest, I decided that I would finally sit down and learn how to program Apple II assembly. It was kind of a midlife crisis thing. Um, my, my, my wife won't let me um, chase after wine, women, and song, <laughs> so I chased after retro computing. Same thing. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> so I decided to do uh, to try to learn how to program. So I, uh, I sat down and I started saying, okay, well, I need to learn how to do scrolling stars. So I looked up Alien Rain. And I was playing the game and I was staring at how these stars were moving. And I was trying to figure out, I wonder if I could do that. Well, I, start, I started to sit down and I wrote, um, I started working on the star moving. And I got that going. And I said, cool, I got stars. And it's like, okay, what else would I need to do? You know, okay, I got 
I need to have some text on the screen. So I learned how to do text. Anyway, so it started out as just me trying to figure figure out how to program something, and all of a sudden, it's Alien Downpour. <laughs> That's fantastic. And yeah, for any, anyone who hasn't seen the game yet, we'll, of course, link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's looking really, really great. It's uh, kind of in the... Uh, in the genre of something like Galaxium, but uh, I think the the polish level and the variety of uh, enemies that you've got is really really great. Um, oh, thanks! And can you tell us a little bit about your your development process because I think uh, it's kind of interesting because you you started out at least really really old school, right? Uh, talk to us about that a little bit. Oh, completely old school. I decided that if I was going to learn how to program on the Apple II, I'd do it the way the people did it back in the day. Now, back in the day, I actually worked with a lot of software companies. I did uh, programmer support. Um, I did art cleanup and stuff like that on the Apple II way back in the day. I worked with uh, Burger Becky for years and years and years, uh, but both at Interplay and both and uh, doing uh, freelance jobs. So we uh, did that. We I would take uh, graphics and stuff. Um, that we ported over from like the Commodore 64 or some other thing, and then I would clean them up for for uh, the Apple II. Um, I've got credits on tons and tons of games from back in the day. Um, World Karate Championship and California Games and World Games and a whole bunch of stuff. I worked for tons and tons of companies back in the day. But yeah, but I never I never programmed on the in assembly. Um, I just never had time. I, I was an Applesoft programmer for years. That's how I paid my way through college. But... Anyway, but I decided to, to do that. And I figured if I was going to do it, I'd go back and I'd start with Merlin. So uh, DOS 3.3, because I don't like ProDOS. Um, I just, I've always found it user hostile, and I don't want anything hostile. I just want to do it. So uh, I started with Merlin 2.43, because it ran in 80 columns, and it uh, ran in DOS 3.3. And I started from the basics. I, uh, I picked up uh, Chris Torrance's uh, wonderful book, uh, assembly lines Roger Wagner and then we started doing that I got through did every every exercise in the book and then I pulled out Apple graphics and arcade game design which is a great book it's if you want to know everything about the Apple II high-res screen and the crazy quirks and programming the thing that's the best book out there at least the best book I found um, so we went through uh, Apple graphics and arcade game design and it taught the basics. So once I knew, once I knew enough assembly to be dangerous, um, I jumped into jumped into Merlin and just started experimenting to see what I could what I could come up with. If I could get something, if I can get anything drawn on the screen, I can draw anything on the screen. So you know, if you can get one thing working, you can get everything working. And uh, the process I went went through was to take. Um, to figure out the bare minimum things I need to do a game. Okay, there are, there are some, um, what I call a game engine. Uh, several years ago, I, I wrote one completely from scratch and wrote a book on it. But there, there are certain things that you need. You need to be able to draw things on the screen. You need to be able to move things on the screen. You need to be able to animate things on the screen. You need to be able to draw text. You need to be able to... If you have scrolling stars, they have scrolling stars moving and stuff like that. So I set out to, to build a game engine um, of all the you know all the all the things to do all the heavy lifting in the game. And then once you have all the background stuff, writing the rest of the code's easy. It's just it's just setting up those routines and calling those routines. So we started that. I started to um, to be able to put a graphic on the screen and then put a bigger graphic on the screen and then to be able to animate something in, in place. Just you know just sitting there different animation frames. Okay, let's try moving it up and down. Moving it up and down, that's easy to do. 
you know, then the then the hard part, okay, moving it left and right and not having it change <laughs> color because because uh, the Apple the Apple II graphics are quirky. Um, if you want to move something left and right and be able to keep it the same color, you need to have seven seven uh, shifts of that image. Um, you know, one for each each you know pixel move, um, each unit move. A unit move is two pixels. Because um, if you move if you move a color something that's purple over one pixel, it turns green, and you know you move it another pixel, it turns purple again. So you you when you do horizontal movements, you do horizontal movements in two pixel increments. So anyway, so I had to figure out. Okay, so now I have seven shifts, so I can draw. I can draw something anywhere if I knew what pixel it needs to go on. I can find the right shape, you know. So then I, I built a system for doing that, so I can. So all I have to do is tell it, okay, put it on you know pixel number one twenty, and it knows which shift to go, and then it draws the right thing in the right place. Well, once you have that, you can you can you, you're free. Once you, once you solve every insurmountable problem, you never have to solve it again. You have a routine that does it, so you don't have to think about it ever again. Like when I, I, I wanted to have something that drew text on the screen, once I have something that I, I can send a message to and it will draw it, I can draw it anywhere. All I have to do is set up a table of where it needs to go, you know, where, where the text message is, where it needs to draw on the screen, and, you know, each tab and VTAB and just let it go. So we started doing that, and so I had a message... I had I built a little box with my logo on it, and then I put little birds on top of it, flapping their arms, and then I did a demo of it. You know, I said, okay, let's change the y value, so it starts moving up, and then you know, having it animate in place. I said, okay, well, we got something going. So then I started looking around at you know what to do. Um, I wrote a Pac-Man game years ago, so I thought, well, let's see if since I have a thing that draws text, let's go and see if I can make um, tiles a tile set that would draw a Pac-Man maze. So I did that. And then I've got nine Pac-Man mazes. The next, the next game is Pac-Man. It's a, we call it Snacking On or something. Um, that's where I got the name of the software company, Snacking On Software. Anyway, so, and then from, from there, I started uh, just experimenting different things I can do. I, I, I developed a little uh, side-scrolling mountain thing that reminded me of... Uh, reminded me of like Defender or something. And I was just kind of casting around. It's like, okay, you know, every, everything that I, I kind of, I kind of would like to do in a game, let's do it, find an example of it and then try to mimic it and see if I can do that. So we did the scrolling. I found the scrolling stars thing and did that. And then I put a ship at the bottom of it. And somebody asked me if I was doing a, doing a, a, a vertical scroller and I wasn't at the time, and I was just joking. Oh yeah, I'm going to call it Alien Downpour as a joke, and and, and you know, I was just just throwing it out there. And then I thought it would be funny to do a logo for it. But what I found is once I did the logo, I had to do the game. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh my god, that looks really cool. Because <laughs> <So>, because <laughs> I used to do art back in the day, and then we've been playing with all the all the utilities that have been coming out lately, like uh, Buckshot and. Um, I, I had Bill Buckle, all Bill Buckles things for, for the last year or so playing with that. So I would, I designed the logo in Photoshop and then converted it, you know, I have a, a, a filter, a filter in Photoshop that, that takes out every other, every other pixel. So you can get something in color, um, on the Apple II. The way, the way the Apple II generates color is not by the pixel position. It's more by the absence of pixels. So if you have a pixel, two pixels next to each other, it's white. But if you have a pixel, 
a pixel by itself and nothing on either side. It's either purple or green or blue or orange, depending on the high bit setting. So if you have, you know, a bit and then a space and then another bit, you have three pixels of orange or three pixels of green. So I have a filter that I, I, I type the text in in white and then I just I, I apply the filter and then it takes out every other pixel. And then I can take that and import that monochrome uh, into the Apple II and it will come out a color, you know, purple or green or whatever, um, depending. So anyway, I, so using the tools, I created something and I created a logo. And then once I got once I showed the logo on the on the Apple II, I was hooked. I had to do the game. So that's how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. I think actually it worked out well because I think it's actually a really great name. Uh, it uh, tells you sort of what the game's going to be, and uh, it's got a nice, uh, nice ring to it. Yeah, because I was thinking, you know, if I wanted it to kind of be an homage to everything that's happened before. Everything that happens in Alien Downpour is either a direct homage or it's just a throwback to all the things that I really liked growing up in, on the Apple II. Um, I, I started with computers way in the beginning. In 1976, I got my first computer. So, so it's like everything has happened. All pop culture references has got a million pop culture references in it. <laughs> um, we're going to ludicrous speed. I actually have a picture picture of you going plaid. It's like we went plaid. We're re- recalculating because you know how you're on your on your GPS. Whenever you're somewhere wrong, it goes recalculating, recalculating. <laughs> so, so it's like that's great. Yeah. So sometimes if you had a you know it's it happens random places in the game. It's like I think we should have took a wrong turn at Albuquerque. You know, I think. <laughs> So I think we took a wrong turn at Albuquerque, and then it just just a pause in the game just for a laugh. So, uh, so you said uh, you're working in in Merlin, and are you working on real hardware or an emulation or uh, some combination? Yeah, all all sorts of combination. I, I originally started programming it on my um, GS. I picked up a GS uh, about a year and a half ago. I decided that you know I, you know I kind of missed kind of missed the old Apple things, and I started getting nostalgic. So I. Gotta get a GS and see if I can learn how to program it. Um, and that has now expanded to seven apples I have in my office right now, um, I've, uh, including a including a, a 1979 Apple II. I, um, uh, a Tony Bogan sent me to test stuff on. It's a it's a non auto start uh, original Apple II, and uh, I have that on my desk. But I've got I've got three two Cs of with different ROMs. Um, I have an unenhanced 2E, and I have an enhanced uh, platinum 2E, and I have the GS. Um, and yeah, we uh, we I st- and uh, I use a, the floppy emulator, so I can, you know, if I'm working on the on the PC, I can just put the disk image on that and take it over to the one of the apples and play on it, and uh, write actual disks. And I use the Apple actual disks. But um, yeah, I pr- I started programming a, in Merlin Merlin um, 2.43 on. Um, in DOS, DOS 3.3 on the GS. And then I moved, um, I, once I figured out I needed to take uh, graphics and stuff, be able to create graphics and on the PC and stuff and move it over, I, I started working in the emulator. So I, I work in Apple Win most of the time now. But um, And I, 90% of the game is written actually under, the, under emulation and, and Apple Win. Um, so we're using that. Um, once uh, the game got too big, I kept having to split it off because Merlin's got a 32K code limit. So I kept having to split it off into smaller pieces and, you know, make a massive table of equates in the main code to find everything. Um, once I once we hit that point about 90% in, I switched over. Now I'm using Merlin 32 on the PC. 
um, which is great because it's a it's a command line thing, so I can make a batch file to have it assemble all the different parts, um, all the tables and everything. So if I ever change anything anything in any of the tables, uh, my batch file will reassemble that part and then put everything together into one great big file. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, Merlin32 is, I think that's Brutal Deluxe's tool. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I also have, uh, I, I also use other tools. I use um, DataJerk's uh, C2D for creating the disk image. Um, he's been working with me on that um, because the, the disk image is so big now. Um, I'm releasing the game on cassette and on disk, so everything everything has to load in one shot, and it got too big to put on a DOS disk um, to have DOS in there. So he's got a, a minimalist bootloader that will load my, load my text um, loading screen and load the game and then disappear so I can use all the memory. And I use all the memory. Um, I think uh, we I finished out, I'm, I'm right at BFFD, I think. <laughs> so it, it runs in 48K on any 48K Apple, even Apple 3s. We got it running in Apple 3 emulation mode. So, <laughs> But yeah, it'll run on, it'll run on a, a 1970, 1978 Apple II in, with 48K. I don't think they had 48K in 77 when it first came out, but... If you can got 48K on your old Apple II, it'll run. Um, it'll run on the 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 two, the two E, uh, the 2C, the GS, and, and the Apple III. So, and all, all the other all the other variants we've tested we've tested on everything. I think that's great. Well, Mikey, I just saved you uh, making an Apple III reference, so Aww. we got to, we got that out of the way. Oh, I just I've been looking uh, for an Apple III forever because back in the day that just you know, when you're 13 years old, you see that you're going, oh my gosh, you know, that's what a computer is, the Apple III. <laughs> so I, I decided that I'm never going to be able to afford one. So I found a case on eBay just yes, a couple of days ago for, it was $134 plus shipping. Shipping's crazy on it because it weighs like 80 pounds, right? But I got a, I, I got a case and I've got to find a keyboard for it. And I figured I can plug in one of those keyboard encoders Retro encoder or, or retro connector. Retro connector. I have one. I have one for my Apple IIc. If that'll work with the Apple III keyboard, then I can plug a Raspberry Pi in the great big huge case, and then I can run an emulator on that. So it's like I have an Apple III, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I will have to uh, paging Charles Mingan. I'm not sure if he's got an Apple III uh, one or not. Well, I, I asked. I sent a message to him, but I haven't heard back from him yet. Um, mm, I think okay. I, I think the encoder works with it, but I don't know. Very cool. So for your next game, uh, do you think you're going to stick with the old school method or are you going to sort of gradually slide over into the modern side of things? Well, I don't know. Um, Merlin 32 is actually really convenient because I can write in a, write in a real text editor. I, I use EditPad mm-hmm. on my PC um, and that works pretty well. And I have I have all the tables and everything already converted over since I'm using them for Alien Downpour. So it'd be really easy to slide into it. But um, I don't know. Now that... You know, when I when I started programming this, I didn't know anything. I've, I mean, I'm making I'm making this game up as I go. I'm learning how to program as I'm doing it. So it's like I sit there going, "Okay, how do I make it do that?" I don't know. So I, you know, I sit and I take a notebook and I do most of my development actually longhand. I I go to talk uh, Del Taco down the street and I sit there because they have free drink refills. You can sit there all day. You know, so <laughs> I'll go I'll go in with my notebook and I'll sit there for a couple of hours thinking about stuff. And I, I write actually all my code out longhand. So I can I can see it as I'm writing it out there, and then I can then I take it back to the computer and put it in. I just I found that that just works much better for me because I can get off and I can write and I can think about stuff and you know whatever comes to mind I can sit down in a notebook and just do it. So just I just, like Waz used to do. Yeah, there's 
there's definitely something to that. I mean, it forces you to think through your code more and like take your take your time and kind of think through the problem rather than just rushing to type out the first thing that comes to your mind and then spending hours debugging it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So I can I, I sit through that and I do that, but but yeah, that's when that's when fun. Um, but you know the whole the whole point of Alien Downpour is just is I wasn't re- ever really set out to write it to release it for anybody else. I just wrote it for me to sit down and it's like okay, well. Let's see if I can do the things that you know all my heroes did back in the day. You know, so I've got homage. I've got homages to Load Runner, and I got homages to um, Choplifter in there. And so yeah, we have we have I have a, I have three slalom zones in there where I just have I have apples like from I, I took the apple from Appleoids and beefed it up a little bit, and I I have them dropping down and and you're zigzagging through the thing, and I, I have a counter on there that's counting counting backwards to tell you how many you have left. But I have it counting in hex as an homage to all the times that I was thinking in, in decimal and the computer was thinking in hex. So I actually wrote it so it counts down in hexadecimal for that. You know, just just so you can do that. So yeah, you have to get to zigzag through 50 hex um, apoloids. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's we're trying to release it for the 40th birthday of the Apple II. That was the that was my driving force. I wanted to have, you know, say you know, if I was just doing it, just sit around and doing it, that it would never get finished. So I said, you know, I want to get this done for the 40th birthday of the Apple II. So I had that always set on my on my calendar in front of me. It's like, here's what we have left to do. So so we, we pretty much hit it by uh, April 16th, the 40th birthday, as I, according to my reckoning. Um, I had uh, 98% of the game actually done and working. So that was pretty good. We hit that, you know, because I, I started programming this in July, I Last July, right around Kansas Fest, I started started learning how to program this thing. So, I think we hit it. Yeah, I think I think if you release it any time this year, I think it still counts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's done now, so we're uh, we're uh, in the in, in the process of duplicating it um, today. I hope, um, unless the playtesters find anything else. I have a, a few playtesters in the group that are banging on everything. So, um, I playtest everything hard. I, I that's why I, I used to do that for a living at Interplay. Um, so I know how to break things. So whenever I, whenever I introduce something in the code, I play that part ad infinitum, ad, ad nauseum, just to make sure it works. But you never know if you fix something, you might break something else somewhere down the road. So I have people testing everything else in the game to make sure it works. That's great. So are you still taking orders for it? Yes, I am. Um, you can uh, go to the website, www.berighteous.com, and uh, hopefully you'll have a, a link in the show notes. And mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, yeah. 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 We're still taking, we're still taking pre-orders. Um, I'm only making a hundred cassettes at this point um, just because it takes a long time to make cassettes. And I don't, I've, I've never done it before. So we have no idea if it's going to work, but um, <laughs> all of our tests, all of our tests have, have worked. I, 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 I went so far to be retro on this as I went and I bought the same cassette deck that is mentioned in the 1978 basic manual that they rec- that they <laughs> recommend. It's a Panasonic cassette deck i went and found a retro one it's 45 years old and i can load the game on it from you know so we even we i write the game to tape i use uh uh, the same guy that does my disc loader wrote this great thing he he runs the the apple II uh game server online Mm -hmm. so if you ever run that it has all the audio for the games well this program's great I, i can i can make my big binary my big binary file and it takes the binary file and converts it into a wave um, it'll, it'll compress it. So it takes half as long to load. It takes, uh, just about two minutes to load the game from tape with the compressor. It's great. 
you know, it'll, it'll, and it'll, it, you can have it, it'll, it'll show my little, my little text loading screen as it's loading. Uh, it gives you, a, gives you an ETA at the bottom of the screen, tells you how long it's going to take to load. It's great. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I converted on that and I, I play the wave file out into my cassette recorder and I record it on the cassette that way. That's great. Yeah. Well, shout out to, to Dave Jerk, friend of the show for, uh, for helping yeah. out with that. His name's Egan, um, Egan Ford. He's been help. Yep. He's yeah. He's been helping help me out immensely on this. He's got a credit in the game because I couldn't have done it without him because I, I ran out of space. I couldn't I couldn't load it. I couldn't load it even with um, Max Files or uh, set to one. I, I couldn't load it anymore in DOS. So he he built he built this thing. It's great. It, uh, his loader I can I can go all the way up to B six FF, which is like way higher than the DOS buffers you could in DOS three three, and it and it's a lot faster than DOS three three too. That's cool. I admire your dedication to the making the cassette version. I think that's one of my favorite parts of this whole story is that uh, you're releasing it on cassette. And uh, yeah, 100 cassettes, that's dedication. I think that uh, that might take a while to, uh, to, to produce <laughs> yeah, those, I wanted, but I think it's fantastic. Well, I wanted it to be as retro as possible. I want to be able to run it on any any Apple II hardware, any configuration. And, you know, it, in the beginning, we, we had cassettes. I tell you, um, mm-hmm. I was going to. I was going to tell you. I wrote a whole thing out. I got my. I got my first computer back in 1977. Um, one of my dad's um, hobbies was doing like electronic tinkering, so we were always building something fun. Like uh, he he built this, wired this awesome little string of LEDs that would light up sequentially, go back and forth, back and forth. You, rem- you remember like Battlestar Galactica way back in the day, and they had the Cylons. They had their little LED eyes that would go back and forth. And and my dad made this thing. It was awesome. It was it was really cool. He had this like breadboard and he wired all the ICs to it and stuff. He did he did electronics tinkering and you, you hooked up a battery to it. The lights went back and forth. Uh, we made uh, toy cars with experimental solar panels back in the day. Uh, I think we got that from like the Edmund Scientific catalog. I don't know if you ever that was that was like that was like the greatest thing. We get the scientific catalog. Um, you know, when you're 11 years old, you're seeing telescopes, you're seeing, you know, electronic parts, you're seeing all kinds of, all kinds of experimental things. You, it's like your mind just goes crazy with stuff. We love, love that stuff. Uh, we went to, we went and saw Star Wars, you know, in, in the opening run um, when I was 11 in 1977. So we saw that the big Edwards Newport cinema. I don't know if you've ever been out there, but it seated like several thousand people in the line, but all the way around. Anyway, my dad um, worked at Rockwell International in '77. I got a Rockwell AIM 65. It was like a single board, single board computer, 6502 processor, a K of memory. Um, had a 20 column thermal printer on it. You know, the, it, it prints on cash register tapes, right? So it'd go. Oh God, um, it was awesome. My dad built this awesome case for the thing uh, out of wood. Um, and it, the board was like mounted to the top and it had a, a hinged acrylic um, noise shield that came down over the top so you can lock it down so, so the printer wouldn't make some crazy noise. And it had a 20-column LED display at one line, one line of LEDs. That's how I started programming um, back in the day. It was, it was awesome. Um, I was a, I, we and my dad, we, we wired the cassette interface for the thing. We actually, you know, breadboarded and wired it together um, that was me and my dad. Uh, that was my dad's bonding thing when we were kids, man. You know, we, me and my dad did, did all that stuff, and um, it was pretty cool. I was the, the only kid in my junior high school to have a computer. Um, people were going, no, no way. 
but yeah, I I was the only one, only one uh, in high school. I was the only kid who had a computer. Um, when the uh, two plus came out in around 1979, my dad cashed in his life insurance and bought the two plus and a disc drive for us to learn and experiment on. We, it was kind of a bonding thing. It was really cool. Um, he must have sunk in probably two thousand dollars or more back then. It was it was brand new when it first came out. And me and my dad, we'd, we'd go to computer club meetings. Back in the day, my dad was my dad was was really interested in this stuff, but it was kind of a bonding thing just to have something for us to do together, and that was that was pretty amazing. And we'd go to the old uh, advanced computer product swap meets. You guys were you guys around back in the day? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, AC, yeah, ACP was like was like mecca. You'd go there, get all kinds of crazy stuff, but they'd have a swap meet a couple times a year where people would bring out surplus stuff, and it would. The old computer stuff, you never know what you would find. It was like magic. And we'd go, we'd go to this thing. And it was just, it was just like, you know, you're 13 years old and just geeking out. And uh, you know, I wanted to recapture some of that, some of those those memories. When I was when I started programming again, I started thinking about all that stuff. And it was like, you know, I want to want to be able to kind of bring back just just references to everything that happened back in the day. And I've, I've got I got so much stuff in Alien Downpour where when I, when I, I'm writing a book on it um, this year, um, talking about um, you know what it's like for a 51 year old person to sit down and try to learn 6502 assembly from scratch, and then and then write a game and what it takes to put the thing together and how the game engine works, and we're, we're going to go source source uh, line by line through the source code. But I'm going to do um, I'm going to go through and uh, make a list of all the pop culture references in the game. That should be half the book, I think. <laughs> but so how did you go how did you go from uh, swap meets to uh, actually working in the industry oh it was it it, it it was a gradual thing we um i got a modem at some point and then we started getting on on the bulletin board systems um but yeah it was uh and that that's that's where we met all the different people let's see i've got notes here let's see if i can find it <laughs> it was funny it's funny um i was i was gonna put it on there you know i was you know, I was the only kid in my high, in my high school that had a computer, and so when they they tell you to do a do an assignment and they want everything typed, written, double spaced, I'd I'd you know print it on my MX eighty printer, right, and with both margins justified. And they I got into arguments with with you know everybody at the school. I, we actually had the had the we don't want the computer doing your homework um, conversation. <laughs> it's like no, it just makes my homework neater. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we had to go through that i was the first person first person in my school ever to you know we'd write a magic window um on the on the apple and we do that um but yeah we used to we uh we're we found bulletin board systems way back in the day um and uh one of the ones i frequented was called the electric warehouse and we had it was a really active group um and we had uh uh, parties, you know, where's parties at the, at the sysops house. Right. So we'd have 30 people with their Apple twos. It'd look like Jonestown the morning after we'd be all, <laughs> we'd be all over the floor. We'd be just copying wares all night and, um, you know, uh, eating cheese paper. And we, you know, remember, I don't know if you remember back in the day, little Caesars didn't have their pizzas in boxes. They had them in great big sleeves and you get two pizzas on a sleeve, you know, and two, two pieces of pizza on a, on a cardboard and a, paper sleeve the pizza pizza right well anyway you get like five of those sets stacked on top of each other you get cheese paper 
<laughs> so that's, you know, and sauce crust, you know, it's like, that's what we did. <laughs> but, but we did that. The worst part is we were a real active group. We had, you know, probably, you know, we'd have 30 people at the group, but um, one of the nexuses of the group was um, Burger Becky Heineman. I don't know if you, you, you guys know her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. She's been on the show. Yeah. But yeah, I've, I've known her for 30, 35 years now. Um, but yeah, but she was, she was kind of the nexus of the group. Cause you know, she was the programming God. She was called Dr. Death back in the day. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, she'd be cracking wares and stuff. So people would bring stuff in and, you know, as a, you know, as a, and would challenge her to do that. And she would crack it in like 10 minutes or something. And then we'd make copies of it for everybody. But, um, but yeah, eventually, eventually everybody there worked for Interplay, um, for her, uh, the system operator worked at Egghead Discount Software. Um, I say that because that's how I always answer the phone. Egghead Discount Software. This is Mike. But <laughs> so originally, all of us worked there because it was game, gainful employment, right? We all worked. Eventually, worked at Egghead, and then and then once Interplay took off, we all most of us got sick of Egghead or when Egghead closed, um, we all migrated over um, to uh, Interplay to work with with Burger, and so. And that was fun. I, I worked in the playtest department for a while, and then I started designing games. Because um, we, we all did that. We, all, you know, the interplay. Everybody did everything. So, you know, I, sometimes I would I would be playtesting games, or I would do artwork. I did three uh, D artwork and cutscene animations for Star Trek Judgment Rights and Star Trek Twenty uh, Fifth Anniversary. Coincidentally, uh, it was twenty five years ago. Uh, <laughs> um, and then we did um, I designed the fifth worst Mario game of all time it was called an evening it was called it was actually actually this said in some magazine it was called an evening <laughs> with an evening with Mario when I did it but it was um, <laughs> it was called Mario's Game Gallery you know I'm a go fish <laughs> you got any <laughs> you got any Koopas <laughs> so yeah I wrote all the I wrote all the dialogue and designed all the screens and so they place checkers and backgammon and go fish and dominoes or something. So, but yeah, I, I designed that game and I designed a few other things that we did. I did level level design for like Bard's Tale construction set and uh, Stone Keep and some of the other games. Um, and then um, me and me and Berger did a whole bunch of stuff freelance. I worked with with work with work with them. Uh, we worked with designer software. Um, did Rad Warrior for the for the PC. But I did, but I did uh, all the artwork and cleanup. Uh, Burger would be doing the doing the the port from whatever from the like the, the Commodore sixty four or from some other computer, and they they translate the graphics best they could. But the graphics systems were totally different back then. So I'd go through and I'd be cleaning up and redrawing all the graphics for the Apple II. So I did that for years, and then from there um, I went to I went to work. Um, I went freelance from from Interplay. Uh, started my own company, Allure Generic Productions, and we did um, 3D modeling and animation and cutscene stuff. And we designed, I designed games for everybody. But we worked, I, I worked with um, Activision, um, Infocom actually helped design their first graphic adventure, which actually was never released. But we did that. I designed a whole bunch of levels for that. Um, then we went on and I worked for Time Warner Interactive and Epics and Electronic Arts and I did a whole bunch of stuff on the PC all, all the way through the 90s. Um, then I quit to um, do ministry stuff. So I went into the ministry and uh, I still do that on BeRighteous.com. We do uh, uh, preaching and teaching Bible stuff. Um, but yeah, I, um, all, through the, all through the 80s and 90s I did that. Um, when I was in 
when I was in college, I, my first, my first gig, I was 18 years old. I was working at McDonald's and it's like, I needed something better. Um, so I went to, I, I was looking on the bulletin board of college and they, they were looking for a programmer to translate APL code, um, to Applesoft. Cause they, you know, back in the day they had this, the, all the VAX 1170s or whatever, whatever, uh, mainframe they had. And they spent thousands of dollars uh, on a grant or something. And somebody wrote chemistry programs to, to translate to you put in your experimental data and it would give you means and moles and, uh, your standard deviations and medians. It, 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 it do all your statistics and stuff, right? So, but the mainframes always broke down and chemistry labs aren't the best place for sensitive electronic terminals and stuff. So, so that stuff languished for years. So um, the way the colleges work is you, you get grant money and you have to spend the grant money or you don't get it next year. So if you know there's a big project coming down the pike and you need money for that, but you have the excess money now. You find some pet project to funnel that money into. So the powers that be go, okay, look, you're spending all this money. We'll give it to you next year. So anyway, that was me. <laughs> you know? And that, that paid my way through the first three years of college. I, I went in there and they asked me, well, you, you know, do you know APL? And I said, well, I'm probably rusty at it. If you have a textbook, I could probably figure it out. I had no idea. Um, APL stands for a programming language and it's incredibly weird. But... Anyway, so they, they, they said, okay, we'll test you out. They gave me a book and they gave me a, you know, a, a stack of printed out tractor feed paper. And I said, okay, write, a, write, write this program. Because the, the program had, had the listing for it in APL, plus it had um, a screen dump of what, you know, what it looked like on the screen. So as long as my program looked the same and did the same thing, they didn't care. So I came back with it. I you know, spent, a, spent two weeks learning APL and then figuring out what the code was. And I did that and... Then they, they said, okay, you got the job. And they gave me five feet, a five-foot stack of ultra-wide tractor feed paper. Okay, that had like probably 100 programs in, in that listing somewhere. And they gave that to me. We picked it up in a pickup truck and I went to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I'd say, you know, you know, the stuff languished for, for years and years. And then all of a sudden in the 80s, they had an Apple II lab. They said, well, let's, can we make the programs work on the Apple II? It's like, okay, well, we'll do it. So... I found out that once I started studying the code, I'm going, oh my God, what am I get, what do I get myself into? But I found out that 90% of the code was exactly the same in every program. And it only changed like 5% of the code just for whatever the program was actually doing. The rest of it was framework stuff and how to put stuff on the screen and how to format it and stuff. So once I had a skeleton together, I could work for 10 minutes and then charge them for 20 hours. And they had no idea. Nobody, I was the only person in the whole college that could read the code. And, and the best part of it, they didn't care because I, I was just there to spend their money. And they had, to, they had to write it down that it was going somewhere. And then a couple of years later, they actually had a need for the money. So I was out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So uh, after that, that first Apple II Plus, going backtracking here a little, uh, that uh, your dad uh, cashed in his life insurance for, which, you know, is dedication. Yeah. Um, what uh, uh, what was next? Uh, was that your last Apple II, or were there Apple IIs after that? Um, that was the, I had I used that one forever. I used that one all, all through college, uh, all all through the first two or three years when I was doing that. Um, um, I've, I have a master's degree in, in mathematics and uh, with an emphasis on fractal de, fractal um, design um, and. Uh, Nature creation. I did my did my thesis. I actually I wrote a program where you can you could um, 
uh, design coastlines on a planet and then go down and visit it, it would actually create the landscapes and stuff. That was way back in the day when, you know, before there were voxels and all the other stuff. I, we were, we were uh, trailblazing back in, back then we did that. But um, when I got to that point, I needed to have a PC. So I, I moved over to the, moved over to the PC for that while I was, um, I was using the Apple II for the first two years um, when I was working at the college doing that stuff. And then we, we eventually transitioned on um, to that, but I, I never upgraded from the two plus I had to, I put 64 K in it. I had a Z 80 card in it and um, I had a, uh, what was it? I had an accelerator in it. It, it was, uh, it wasn't the, the trans, it wasn't the transwarp. It was one of the other ones that was cool. And, but yeah, I used that, used that all through the eighties, all through the eighties. And then we, we transitioned to, to that. Now after college, I started work, I worked with, um, JPL doing planetary flyovers and stuff like that. So we needed a little more, we needed more horsepower, but yeah, I was writing, I was writing some of the first 3d modeling code for that. And eventually we, we moved over to, to 3d studio and stuff like that. Once, once the technology caught up with us, we, uh, I moved over to, to real tools and we did that, but, but yeah, I didn't, uh, you know, we didn't program the Apple for ever for years after that. It was sitting around, I moved it from house, moved it from place to place. It's, it's still in the, the garage somewhere at my mom and dad's house. But yeah, the, but back in the day, my dad, my dad cashed in his life insurance. He wanted to bond with us, you know? So originally, I don't know if it was his idea, but I know it was, I know my mom wanted that. My mom wanted me and my dad to do everything. So we, we originally had it on the, on the kitchen table and I couldn't touch it until my, until my dad got home and we could do it. Um, I tell you, I love, I love my dad. He worked two jobs. He worked a job in the daytime and he worked a job at night, but he was home for a little bit in between. So we, we, we would sit and we'd work on it and we'd, but you know, eventually, eventually I took it over, but you know, I guess you know, when you're 13, you don't, you know, understand the importance of bonding and everything. I wish I, I wish I understood it now because, you know, wasted so much time, but, but it was fun. Me and my dad, me and my dad did everything together and he, he, he put that investment into, to, you know, to, for us to have something to do together, but also to invest in me, to get me to, you know, to give me a head up on what was coming in the world because, you know, computers, he knew computers were going to be the thing and he wanted me in as quickly as we can. And uh, we did, I, you know, I owe everything to that. And that, that was part of the reason for alien downpour. And the reason I'm committing so much to try to make it right is I want to, you know, give back to, you know, everything it's given me, you know, everything that's happened in my life started from that, you know, everything that's happened in my career started with that little machine and uh, started with the memories we made during those times and all the folks we met. And um, it's been a kind of a kind of a kind of an opus. Um, but yeah, I never I never wrote the game for anybody else but me. I just wanted to I wanted to see see how much I could do. And uh, it was funny about a month ago, a month and a half ago, I was sitting in my office and I and it, the, it just dawned on me. It's like I could write Choplifter from scratch if I wanted to. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, because I mean, you grow up idolizing these people. You know, they're god, yeah. they're gods. Uh, how do you do this? And all of a sudden, once you slog, once you slog through it and start figuring out, you realize that assembly programming actually is really easy. And you know, it's like, wait, you know, we always looked up to these people like, oh, this is just beyond us. These people must be gods. But no, they're just folks who figured it out, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and then didn't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> they like the, a great way. They like the adulation, so. 
So uh, you'd mentioned online that uh, Alien Downpour is going to be uh, at Kansas Fest this year. Yes, I'm coming to Kansas Fest. Um, I submitted a thing for a talk. Ho- hopefully, I'll, I'll get to talk. I want to do at least an hour on uh, on the Apple II in general um, programming it. Plus, you know, um, Alien Downpour and the kind of things you need for a, a a game engine. I'm releasing the game engine for Alien Downpour at some point. Um, it's going to coincide with the book that explains how to do it. But I might have um, I might have something. Might have something at Kansas Fest people can see, but I'm, I'm hoping to do a, I'm hoping to do a presentation on it. Um, if not, we'll we'll just get a bunch of computers and we'll 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 play Alien Downpour, or do a tournament or something. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they'll approve the uh, the talk there. In fact, I think they put out recently a, a call for more talks. So uh, yeah, I'm sure well, I, uh, I didn't even hear about it. I'm, I'm on their mailing list, but they didn't. They nobody ever sent me anything. I got a. I'm on a mailing list or other eight bit things where, you know, people are, you know, news and somebody announced that they were asking for talks. It's like, well, how come they didn't say anything to me about it? So I went in and immediately put in a, put in for that. Cause you know, I think that would be fun. I'd be fun. Um, I used to teach, um, you know, I could, I could go for hours on stuff like this. I used to teach an eight hour class on advanced 3d modeling and animation. Cause sometimes it takes eight hours to set something up and, and the little four hour formats didn't work for me. So you had to pay eight hundred dollars to get into my class for that, though. Yeah. So, so what's next after Alien Downpour? Um, uh, snacking on the Pac-Man clone. I started that originally, um, and I got I got nine or ten mazes for it. All the all the Ms. Pac-Man mazes, all the original the original Pac-Man maze, and then a bunch of stuff I found online. Uh, I you know once I figured out how to do how to draw one maze, I figured well let's put all of them in. Um, about twenty years ago, I I did a a, a Pac-Man game. Um, on the PC in a language called Euphoria. It's an interpreted language. We wrote a whole bunch of games. I, I wrote a an asteroids game that I actually wrote a book on. The so I had all I had all that all those that stuff inside my head. So I thought, well, let's see what Pac-Man would look like in in high res, and uh, it looks pretty. It looks pretty good. It looks it looks really good. And I was really actually impressed with it. Um, the Pac-Man guys, the ghosts make an appearance in Alien Downpour. They're uh, the second. Second boss you hit is a or the Pac Man ghosts. They come in and they they drop little flashing energizers at you, and you have to you have to avoid them because you, you can't you can't blow up the bombs, but they'll blow you up if you hit they hit you. So you gotta. So it's <laughs> it's in in the game. I, I want I didn't want it to have um, straight just shoot aliens level after level after level because um, it gets boring after a while. Like like Alien Rain is an awesome game, but after about the fifth or sixth level, it's exactly the same. Well, it's exactly the same every level, but after about five levels, you're bored with it. So what I did was I, I have uh, three three new three new aliens, and then um, an alliance uh, level which has the the three aliens doing whatever those three aliens do. But there's you know there's now four different kinds of aliens on the screen, and then I break it up I have, with a slalom zone where we have a bunch of bunch of Apple two forty birthday birthday cakes coming down. You got to avoid them. <laughs> you, know, you, have to, you have to get through the slalom zone and then there's a boss level um, the first boss level is a bunch of space invaders they come down and they 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 drop uh they, they they shoot you you know they 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 drop little zigzag bombs at you and you got to avoid them so that that level is 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 half shoot the alien half avoid the stuff coming down at you um and then once you once you get through the boss level then we have four more levels of, of regular aliens and then the second then we have a second slalom zone. That's a bunch of big apples. Their apples, apples come down. This is apple two forever, you know? And then, and then, and then we have the second boss. The second boss level is the, is the Pac-Man ghosts. 
and they come they come and they they drop little power pills at you. You got to avoid. They're flashing. And then we have three more levels of aliens, and then we have Toshi Station, which I thought was funny because <laughs> you're because you're going you're going you're going after Big Boss, which may or may not be Steve Jobs. Okay, <laughs> but 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 you have to go through Toshi Station. It's actually Macintoshi Station. But but you have to but you have to go through the power converter levels. It's a throwback to Star Wars, right? But I was going to Toshi I was going to Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. So so it's it's an electric slalom zone. So it's got, got like girders. You have to you have to go through certain places, and there's electric fields. So if you you know it, the the level says choose, but choose wisely because if you pick the wrong one, you get electrocuted. So you have to so you have to zigzag your way through that, and then you meet you meet the final. You meet the final boss. Um, you don't actually shoot Steve Jobs because he's dead, but you know I, I, I thought that I thought that would be rude. It's, it's just kind of tongue in cheek. Your your mission your mission is to is is to rescue hostages that were that couldn't be brainwashed into thinking the Mac was a good idea, and <laughs> because there's some of us that it's like, wow, the Mac is insanely great. That's really awesome, but uh, I can't program that. <laughs> you know? I can't I can't open that up and add stuff to it, it you know it, it, you know anyway so you know basically your idea is to blow up all the max he has in stock so that he has to rethink his his priorities <laughs> and sadly he sadly he doesn't he doesn't come to our side he decides to go on to the next big thing <laughs> so he disappears but anyway yeah, you're, you're, so you're shooting a little happy max at the end um and they they turn sad and fall on you when you blow them up. So you have to, <laughs> you have to, and oh, and the, the, the bombs they drop are little open and closed apples. So they're the little apples that are flashing, they come down on you. So, <laughs> but yeah, I want oh, That sounds fantastic. Oh, it, it came out really good. I'm really, I'm, I'm really impressed with what happened with it. I had no idea when I started it that it would be anything like this. Originally, I was just going to see if I can put aliens on the screen and move them around. And then I said, well, if I can move them around, let's see if I can shoot them. And then, okay, well, they need to animate. And then they started, an- I got them animating. And then I had them dropping bombs on you. And then all of a sudden, it's a game. <laughs> <laughs> it never ceases to surprise me how often I hear on the show, um, you know, when somebody comes on to promote something, uh, it almost, you know, it, it's, it starts out so commonly with, well, I wanted to learn assembly language, so I did this. And then, um, at the end of it, we get to we get to experience whatever cool product that they've come up with, and so it's really great to hear that that this game came out of that that same desire. Well, yeah, I used well, I, I used to design design software, so it's like well, it's like well, you know, once once we got it actually where the aliens are moving around and shooting, it's okay. Well, let's let's sit down and design this thing. So I, I have a roadmap to go on. Um, everything in the game was actually been planned for months and months and months. I'm not just adding stuff on, <laughs> just because awesome. uh, I, I I don't like creeping featureism. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know you want you want to be able to you know you 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 want to have a, a design. It's like okay, here's everything in the game. You might you know, you might tweak some of the stuff that doesn't work because I mean, when you design stuff, you have no idea what what physically you can do on the Apple II. You know, if you you need to adjust some things or whatever. So. But yeah, it just it fell into place once I had everything designed. It just you know it took forever to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming on today to to share with us and talk about it. Oh, I, yeah, we really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. I, I'm always available to talk on stuff. It's just you know you're the first people ever ever asked, so I, I appreciate really? it. <laughs> That's unusual. Well, thank you for uh, yeah, definitely thank you for saying yes then. Oh yeah, and, and you can order Alien Downpour from our website. It's twenty dollars for. 
for floppy or or cassette or if you want both is 25 bucks because the shipping's the same so you know it only costs a dollar to make a cassette so okay you know so yeah I'll, awesome. a lot of a lot of folks are getting both of them for in collector's items and i'm i'm packaging them retro style and in, in ziploc baggies with a, a little booklet which i haven't written yet but that's the next thing in the list finish the game and then you know write the write the blurb for it but it'll it'll all go in and and uh um, all the pre-orders, all the pre-orders, I'm autographing. So, you know, anybody wants to wants to wants to autograph, let me know. But yeah, I had to actually make awesome. it. I had to make a space on the label for that because I, I made labels and I showed everybody that, and the people started asking me if I would autograph them. I said, okay, sure, why not? <laughs> awesome. We will we will link to all that in the show notes for sure. Oh, and thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks thanks again for coming on the show today. Oh, I appreciate it. I hope I didn't talk your ear off. Oh, no, no, not at all. That was wonderful. Hi, I'm Bill Budge, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. All right. Well, thanks again, Michael. That was fantastic. Um, we got uh, we got some news, right, Michael? Why don't we roll into that? Yeah, let's play some music. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. So this first item uh, is yours, Mike. It looks like John Romero was uh, Facebook aliving some prototype stuff. What's going on here? Yeah, so this is just um, a short uh, YouTube video, or I guess Facebook, yeah, Facebook Live, but um, video of a a of a two plus uh, prototype that he has, and and I don't know where he got it, but it, there's definitely some interesting things going on in that case that. That uh, yes, this is not your standard Apple II Plus. Yeah, it's an interesting beast. It's black for one thing, and it's got some strange ports on it. Uh, so there's not a lot of detail available, but uh, yeah, there's some discussion there. So we'll link to that uh, video in the associated discussion on Facebook, and maybe uh, someone has figured out what it is. Yeah, you did. You mentioned that it, that it's black, and that's um, so. Of course, that brought up the the Bell and Howell. Somebody uh, mm-hmm. mentioned that, but I, I guess you know both. Both John and uh, Sean Fahey, who's an expert with that particular Apple II Plus, um, the the Bell and Howell have verified that this is not what that is. So this is uh, mm-hmm. an interesting beast, to be sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something else for sure. Yeah, John Romero uh, pops up uh, now and again in the community, and when he does, it's always uh, something interesting. Yep, I'm still uh, still not cool enough or important enough to get an invite to his uh, Apple II reunion, but you know, <laughs> one can always dream, I guess. Yeah, that's heady company. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, all right. Uh, speaking of heady company, actually, uh, Leah Alexander, who we've talked about on the show before, she does uh, the uh, lo-fi Let's Play uh, stuff on YouTube. She's played a lot of uh, Apple II games. Uh, she's also a, an avid uh, podcaster and various other things. Uh, and uh, she did a, uh, a podcast for The Guardian uh, where she talks to uh, Jason Scott, everyone's favorite uh, flamboyant archivist, <laughs> and uh, everyone's uh, favorite snarky modern-day cracker, 4AM. Uh, this is a really great listen, and uh, she talks all about the... You know the the modern uh, relationship between archival uh, archiving software and cracking, and uh, the types of work that uh, 4AM and Jason are doing. And uh, yeah, this is a, a really great listen. Yeah, I enjoyed this. Uh, of course, it's um, great work and uh, excellent production values, and it's it's fun to have. Uh, I think both of them together on the same show because you have, you know, uh, 4AM who's kind of you know down 
getting his hands dirty in the bits and bites, if you will, um, and can talk about that. And then Jason, who's doing, who's kind of got the uh, bigger picture stuff covered as far as, you know, what all this means and we're, you know, gathering mass numbers of discs and, and just sort of handing them off to 4AM. Um, and uh, together, you know, I think the two of them, plus, you know, the work that Cucumber does um, has, has really be- been a benefit, not only for the Apple II community, but for, you know, preservationists and digital archivists in general. Yeah, I, uh, I think of the two of them as sort of being representatives of their respective groups, because, uh, you know, there are a lot of folks doing, you know, preservation on that side of it, you know, not just Jason, but, uh, you know, uh, the Call Apple folks are doing a lot. And mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Weir, uh, Stephen Weir has done a lot. So there's lots of, you know, active preservationists on the history side. And then on the on the technical, the cracking side, you know, 4am and Cucumba and Antoine Vigneault has been doing a lot of cracking for preservation. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of developed into this two sided community, uh, everybody kind of working together to uh, to save all this uh, software uh, so yeah i'm really glad to see those two kind of representatives uh, for for both sides all right so speaking of uh, mr wyrick uh, he wrote in actually to let us know so we talked uh, i think it was last month about uh, it was what the anniversary of what some people were calling the first uh, virus uh, i don't know first on the apple II or first uh, generally but uh, do you remember what was that virus called i forgot now oh, that was the elk cloner virus that's right, Elk Cloner. Yeah, I always mix it up with Stoned, which was a really early DOS mm-hmm. virus. Yep. Uh, one of my very first jobs was uh, uh, in the IT group at uh, uh, my high school. We had a room full of uh, XTs and uh, or XT clones, and our job was basically to go around and rem- remove Stoned every day uh, <laughs> because every single student had it on their floppies, and so every single day, every single machine had stoned on it again, so that, that was our job, was just, just go, we just had a floppy disk that would remove it, and we just put it into machine after machine, and that would take about an hour, and then we would sit around and, and uh, play games for two hours, awesome. and that was the job, so it was, it was pretty good, a pretty good gig. <laughs> But anyway, uh, the point of all that was uh, Stephen Weirich wrote in to give us a link to uh, a really great history page of his that uh, lists uh, kind of a, a nice history of, of Apple II viruses because there were more than a few. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, they didn't get around much because it's hard to get around on SneakerNet, but uh, you know they uh, they were out there. Yeah, uh, Dr. Weirich's um, resources are definitely of value to anybody who's interested not only in Apple II history, but he does cover a lot of uh, general um, computing and IT history as well. So it's great stuff. And buy his book because I think he turned the whole website into a book that you can buy on Amazon. Um, and it's called what? Sophistication. He's going to kill sim- me. Sim- <laughs> simplicity and sophistication. That, yeah, that's, that's the one. Sophistication and simplicity. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, something like that. Um, we can't remember books for for uh, Facebook groups, and we can't remember this one either. But uh, <laughs> it's a great book and uh, a nice read, and you should pick it up. Yeah, we uh, we'll link to it, and you can. Uh, he always sells it at uh, Kansas Fest as well. So if you're coming to K Fest, you can buy one there. Yep. Uh, and I bet he would autograph it for you. He sure will. And uh, it's been a while actually since we linked to Apple II History.org, so we should do that anyway. All right, so this next item is uh, is mine. Uh, I'm a, a rabid follower of uh, 4AM's Twitter feed, as I'm sure many of our listeners are. And uh, one of the themes that comes up for me personally is that, uh, of course, he's largely cracking uh, educational software, which was the great uh, uncracked frontier back in the day. And uh, I, I think... Uh, if I was going to create a new section for our show, uh, which I'm not going to do because we already have enough sections that we <laughs> never do anymore, but uh, we have uh, the section title of this new section would be "Educational Games Are Underappreciated." Um, you know, some of these games had fantastic graphics and really great production values, and I'm going to link to. 
uh, a feed on an educational game featuring the Muppets, and uh, 4AM goes through the, the you know his crack usual crack post with it, and he's got a bunch of screenshots in there. And uh, the menu system in this game has to be well, so it's it's without a doubt uh, the greatest Muppet-based U- UI ever created, uh, and I'm going to put it high on the list of UIs. Period. Uh, it's so it's a menu system with these big, colorful, friendly icons, and as you s- select, you know, choosing which icon is selected so you can make your choice, uh, Kermit is behind the menu, kind of reaching around it and pointing at things with his <laughs> feet or his flippers. Or I don't know. You, I don't know what frogs have paws. I don't know. Uh, anyway, <laughs> with his he's anthropomorphized, so we'll we'll call them hands. Anyway. Uh, so it's this big, beautiful, full-screen graphic of Kermit, and he's wrapping his body around this menu and pointing at stuff, and it, he animates as, as you move around. It's it's just fantastic. And uh, I just I think yeah, someone really put their heart into coding and doing the art for that, and uh, nobody, uh, I think, probably even remembers it. So uh, thank you, 4AM, for posting that stuff. It's shocking how much of that stuff we're finding out now, just, you know, 40 years later, um, how much of that educational software wasn't preserved. And mm-hmm. I, I guess it sort of makes sense if you think about it. I mean, you can't, you couldn't just go to an egghead software and, and buy some of these titles. They tended to mm-hmm. show up in school. And, and if you were in school and you, te- <laughs> I don't know about you, but when my teacher caught me trying to crack software, I got in trouble. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it wasn't something where you could borrow, <clears throat> borrow the discs and bring them home and do it. Um, so I, you know, I think once a lot of that stuff, made its way into the storage closets in the basements of the schools and they were never seen again. And uh, you tend to forget until a project like this begins to resurface the hundreds and hundreds of titles that we haven't seen since then. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point that you just made that even if you wanted to crack this stuff back in the day, it would be hard to physically get your hands on the discs because yeah, they weren't selling them in stores. They, they were sold through, you know, educational back channels, vertically integrated, you know, education software markets. And so, yeah, it's not like a student would have access to that. So unless they could sweet talk their teacher into letting them take the discs home or, or, or steal them or something, <laughs> then uh, yeah, you wouldn't have access to it. And then since then, nobody's cracked this stuff because nobody has, you know, nostalgia for most of these games no one has fond memories of you know have being forced to do arithmetic with kermit or whatever <laughs> uh i think a lot of us probably have actually kind of negative memories of that stuff because <laughs> you felt sort of cheated i think at least i did often as a as a kid where you know they we, these were us trying really hard to look like games and yeah. make learning fun <laughs> but you know you saw right through it even as a you know eight-year-old or whatever that oh you're just trying to make me learn fractions uh, and, and dressing it up with, you know, bears and, and umbrellas or whatever. But, uh, yeah, at, uh, at the end of the day, you knew it wasn't a, it wasn't a real game. So, I, anyway. had, I had no idea who Mavis Beacon was, but, man, I wanted to kill him or her. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. I mean, there were definitely some gems. I mean, obviously, Carmen Sandiego, right. fantastic games. Uh, I personally Rocky's have really fond, fond, yeah, fond memories of, of Rocky's Boots, uh, Robot Odyssey, uh, all the Sunburst games, uh, the Factory. Uh, I've actually recreated the Factory as a mobile game uh, in my spare time. I, I never released it because it didn't come out very good. But uh, <laughs> the uh, the Factory is is a terrific game. So yeah, there's there there were gems for sure. But uh, yeah, by and large, it was uh, Muppets and Fractions. So anyway, I don't think anyone <laughs> remembers them very fondly. But definitely look at this Twitter feed and marvel at uh, as as I said the the pinnacle of Muppet based UI. Okay, uh, moving right along. We had a 6502 workshop on the show last month, and we talked lots about Nox Archaeist. 
And one of the nifty things they're doing with that game is kind of quote unquote marketing it with these uh, vignettes from the engine, these little short stories that they're telling uh, using the game engine as they add features. And uh, so there's a new one of those out. It's called Cowapult. Uh, catapult but with cows Mm -hmm. and uh, it's a two-parter we will link to the first part Uh, as we record this part two just came out so I don't have a link to that on hand but uh, I'm sure you can follow the links in YouTube from part one so we will put that in the show notes Uh, and it is entertaining as always I love it Okay, so we, uh, was it last month or months before the last, we, uh, we ragged on uh, 8BitDo's <laughs> gamepad quite a bit, and uh, yeah, maybe we were a little hard on them, but uh, somebody out there is listening because actually uh, there has been a uh, firmware update for that thing. Now, we weren't sure last time we talked about it if it was even possible to update the firmware on this thing, uh, and uh, for anyone who doesn't remember, the, issue, the main issue with it is that the analog stick on this thing was not actually analog. Uh, it was just hard coding uh, three left, center, and right values for the joystick. And uh, so it really wasn't playable for most Apple II games that needed an analog joystick. It might work for Loadrunner or a couple of others, but uh, really pretty, pretty limited. Um, so they have uh, fixed that somewhat. Uh, Chris Torrance has a great review of that firmware update. And uh, so it turns out you can update the firmware, which is great. And uh, on his Apple IIe, the analog stick now actually works quite well. Um, There's still a few issues with it. it doesn't quite reach uh, zero or 255 at the extremes. I think it gets down to like 11 and it gets up to like 243 or something like that. So if you have a game, a lot of games had uh, configure, uh, joystick calibration uh, sequences in them uh, before you started. So if you have one of those, this would work great because you could calibrate it and it, would, it wouldn't care too much about not having the full range of motion. But uh, some games didn't, so some games might be looking for you know, numbers close to zero to move left, and so you might not be able to move left, that kind of thing. Uh, so there may be some issues there. And for some reason, Chris tried it on the 2 Plus, and it didn't seem to work at all on the 2 Plus either. The numbers were kind of crazy. So, uh, so it's, it's definitely an improvement, uh, but uh, hopefully they'll update it again because... Uh, my guess is that they tested this upgrade on their own to Apple IIe or whatever you know Apple II they had access to. But so uh, I'll I'll dive into a mini tech segment here um, for anyone who doesn't know how the analog sticks on the Apple II actually work. Um, it's uh, it's a pulse counter basically. So there's a five 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 timer in the Apple II that's generating pulses, and the uh, resistance in the joystick is used to control the, the the speed of those pulses. And then there's a timer that that counts them. And so there's an RC circuit in there. And so the exact performance of the joystick is going to vary a little bit from Apple II to Apple II because there's a, an RC circuit in there. So there's a resistor and a capacitor. There's resistors in the joysticks and capacitors in the in the Apple II. And no electronic component is, is exactly on spec. You know, they're all plus or minus a few percent. You know, sometimes they can be as off as 10 or 12 percent. Uh, of what their rated value is. So uh, the designer has done the math for the exact value, the ideal value, but they're going to vary by by some amount. So, you know, a pulse counter based on an RC circuit is never going to be the same on any two Apple IIs. So you kind of have to design something like a joystick to overshoot quite a bit to encompass all of, the, of that variation. So you'd want to, you know, kind of give your range from, you know, well below zero to well above 255, if, you know, you can think of it that way. So... Uh, they may have tuned it to exactly 0.255 on their own personal 2E, but then on Chris's, for example, it's uh, it's not reading the same range. So uh, hopefully they'll take another shot at that. Uh, seems like somebody out there is listening. And uh, yeah, it's nice to see that they're at least uh, working on it. 
Yeah, so so often the uh, companies will will put a piece of hardware out there, and by the by the time it gets into the hands of of the users, um, and they begin to discover that there are problems, the company's already three generations ahead, and they've, you know, their their only advice is well, upgrade. You know, so it's it's mm-hmm. nice that they're not doing that. Yeah, yeah, they do seem to actually uh, care, so that's great. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> people still care. Um, <laughs> all right, so in our in our last uh, soft talk review, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, Rainbow Software. In fact, our last couple of uh, issues we've talked about that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we were sort of marveling at how their uh, logo looks so much like the early online systems logo <laughs> right. does, uh, Rainbow Software being a, a chain of software stores. So uh, listener Jake wrote in with a, a fantastic story about that. Uh, in fact, there was a bit of a discussion on Twitter uh, between uh, myself and Paul Hegstrom and a, f- a couple other folks about that whole thing and trying to figure out if there was a connection there or what. And uh, we think uh, there is. So uh, Jake uh, was uh, uh, a, f- a frequent patron of Rainbow Software. He said he used to hang out there uh, as a youth. And uh, the Northridge uh, location uh, in the north part of Los Angeles uh, was uh, his store. That was where he hung out. And it turns out that uh, Ken and Roberta Williams also hung out there. So oh. That was their main uh, store that they went to. It was this Rainbow Software in Northridge. Uh, and they that was also the where they sold their very first copies of Mystery House. So they when they first produced that game, they went and brought them to Rainbow Software in Northridge and said, hey, please sell our game. Uh, so there's a very, very direct connection there. So it seems safe to say that the online systems logo was at least inspired by Rainbow Software. Uh, certainly it was in their consciousness uh, when they started that company. So, uh, yeah, it might well be uh, uh, some borrowing happening there. Oh, yeah. See, we had actually accused Rainbow of stealing from online because we'd heard of online and, and <laughs> not so much Rainbow, and it turns out to have been maybe the other way around. Yeah, exactly. So apologies to Rainbow Software. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, more proof that the winners write the history books. <laughs> yep. Uh, all right. Well, speaking of things that we covered poorly, um, <laughs> I think uh, two or three episodes ago, we talked about uh, Caverns of uh, Mordia and yes. how that had been uh, resurrected at, uh, I believe, at Wasfest. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, so uh, listener Neville sent in a couple of links uh, or a link related to this. I think uh, I wanted to mention it again because uh, now that we have this link and he kind of tells the story uh, in, in a nice blog post. Uh, so I think uh, so what had actually happened is he had ordered some floppies, uh, I think, online. And in that package was this game Caverns of Mordia that he'd never heard of. And he actually did some quite excellent sleuthing work to figure out who the author of this game was. And uh Turns out the author of this game was still around, uh, so and was in Australia. So he uh, invited uh, he invited the author to uh, Wasfest, and and he showed up, uh, and he oh, had wow. some original discs, and he had all his original uh, drawings and notes from development of the game, and all the maps and everything. Uh, so that he's got Neville's got great photos of all this stuff in his blog posts. So definitely uh, worth a look. Uh, this is a game that I think neither of us had heard of, which is why maybe why when we talked about it the first time, we kind of glossed over uh, how interesting this story actually is. Um, so it may have been just an Australian release, uh, small small release type of thing. But uh, So yeah, we'll link to that story, and uh, hopefully this is a little bit better coverage of it. Super cool. Yeah, and uh, Neville also in that same email sent us some information about his personal 2GS that uh, they also resurrected at uh, Wasfest. He had 
you know, like many of us, moved it from house to house over the years, and it sat in boxes, and uh, he finally decided to dust it off, but he had no idea if it worked. And uh, so he cracked open the boxes, and rather than just trying to fire it up on the spot or whatever, he just took it all to Wasfest, and kind of as a group, they decided to see if they could resurrect it. And uh, so he tells the whole story there in uh, another entertaining uh, blog post. And of course, with the 2GS, uh, like many of us, uh, he had a hard drive. And so that's the real big question mark is, is does the hard drive spin up? And so there's a lot of tension around that. Uh, and uh, yeah, they, they do manage to get it uh, imaged. Um, there was some bad blocks and stuff, but uh, looks like it all it all worked out in the end. So good on them for doing that. Yeah, one of the things I always look forward, always look forward to every year at, uh, when I go to Kansas Fest is uh, bringing along some dead hardware that either I haven't had time to get to or that has, you know, outsmarted me and getting together <laughs> with people who know what they're doing and, and having and coming home a week later with working stuff because <laughs> there's so much brains and talent there. And it's nice to hear that that's happening elsewhere as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then, of course, the flip side of that is uh, someone's computer always lets out the magic smoke every year at uh, K-Fest. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always felt like we should have a prize for that or something, first uh, first magic smoke of K-Fest. But uh, uh, it's usually, I think these days, one of the disk imaging computers because they're working hard the whole time. Hmm. Um, yeah. And actually, uh, you know, last year... Um, uh, Mark Pilgrim brought uh, his Provitz to uh, K-Fest with the hopes of possibly getting it fixed because it kind of worked, but it had some issues. And uh, sadly, it did. Uh, a few of us, including myself, poked at it for quite a while, but uh, we weren't able to uh, squeeze much life out of it. And uh, I think by the end, it was actually worse. Uh, it was kind of working when it arrived, and it didn't really work at all when it left. So it's hard to say uh, what all happened there. I don't know if we made something worse by trying to fix it, but uh, he, uh, I think, had uh, plans of uh, taking it to someone who uh, was a proper uh, electrical uh, engineer who could properly diagnose and fix it. So hopefully that happened and maybe it'll uh, show up again this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, Mike, uh, this next one's yours. You got some WASFest announcements for us? Yeah, so um, WASFest, of course, uh, recently happened. And um, Andrew Rowan posted over at the A2 Central um, uh, a few of the more interesting ones, uh, the recaps uh, basically were that the Manila, uh, Manila Gear has announced that their version of the no-slot clock is now available for pre-ordering. It had first been announced at uh, WASFest 5.25 back in November, and they had run into some delays for software testing. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to pre-order from them. Uh, John Brooks uh, announced that he's working on a new version of Protoss 8. That will incorporate the drivers for the no-slot clock and the D-clock. Um, not, it's not available yet, but it looks like it's already in testing, so hopefully we'll see that soon. And uh, Sean McNamara has produced an electrolytic capacitor spec-and-check sheet for the Aztec power supply, which is useful if you're uh, refurbishing a, an early Apple II or the, the, the Apple II Euro Plus the power supply units, and uh, there's a, a link to, uh, to a blog post about that, and we'll include all that plus the... Um, uh, the write-up, uh, the organizer's write-up uh, about WASFest PR number six uh, in the show notes. Awesome. Wow, Manila Gear is really, they're really making it, making things happen there. Yep, cranking that stuff out. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And yeah, and John Brooks' dedication to continue improving Protoss is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, uh, this next one looks like yours as well. What uh, What's going on here? Yeah, so uh, Stephen, I hope I pronounced it right, Human, H-E-U-M-A-N-N. Uh, has released uh, a product called AFP Bridge. It's a tool for the Apple IIgs that allows you to connect uh, two files, connect to file servers 
using uh, the AFP, uh, Apple Filing Protocol, over TCP IP. And uh, it works by um, using the existing Apple Share FSTs. So you, um, but the network traffic goes over TCP IP rather than Apple Talk. And what's nice about this basically is that it saves you from having to set up a local talk network when you're, um, when you're grabbing files from your local file server. So uh, a really convenient thing to have. Boy, that's really cool. Okay, yeah. I'm going to have to dust that one off when I dust off my 2GS. The only requirement is that you have a Marinetti-compatible Ethernet-type connection in your 2GS to obviously get online. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, this next fellow uh, could use such a thing. Uh, so <laughs> this, is a, this is a video that I came across in a non-traditional Apple II <laughs> feed. I don't know where it came from, but um, it's, uh, it's a fellow who... Uh, so he's... Uh, he's actually a Linux blogger or a Linux podcaster, I should say, and uh, he also has a video feed for his podcast. And uh, he apparently has been doing this thing where every so often he will take a, an older computer and try using it as his real computer for doing his real work for a period of time, like <laughs> oh, a man. week or two. Yeah, it's an interesting endeavor. So he's done it with, I think, a couple of old Macs and a couple of old DOS machines and things like that. So this time around, he's doing it with the 2GS. And so he's got this video where he kind of sets it up. He talks about the 2GS a bit, the history of it, and uh, it's interspersed with a bunch of ads for Linux products. So you kind of <laughs> may want to have your finger on the skip button a little bit, but um, <laughs> unless you're super into Linux products, uh, clearly he's, a, like say, a Linux podcaster who uh, makes his living shilling Linux gear. But uh, <laughs> sure. anyway, anyway, it's a fun watch. Um, uh, he's very enthusiastic. Uh, he's he's done his homework, but he's not someone who was like a 2GS user back in the day. So he's kind of coming at it from uh, fre with fresh eyes, but he has done his homework. Um, so, you know, he, he definitely got deep into this uh, in, in for setting this up. Now, he's not using real hardware. This is all in, in emulation. He's using uh, GS port. But, um, you know, you can definitely tell that he did his homework. Uh, I will say this, this is the kind of video that may raise your nerd rage uh because he does get some stuff wrong uh he says some <laughs> things that aren't true and stuff stuff in the video but you know it's all in good faith and he's uh, his enthusiasm is fantastic he's uh you know very excited about it and uh so he's going to do a second follow-up video in a couple of weeks uh this video just came out as of this recording so Maybe a few days from now, as we record, uh, the second video will be available. Uh, it should probably be uh, shown, you know, from the first video in YouTube. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll be very exciting to see what comes of it. Uh, he experiments with different types of word processors and, and so on to figure out which which ones he can use for his, you know, his actual writing and stuff that he does. Uh, the the main stumbling block he runs into is getting data in and out of it. Um, which ironically would be a lot easier if he had real hardware. Uh, you know, he could use a, a CFFA or he could use ADD Pro or there's lots of different ways, you know, he could do it, floppy emulators, things like that, SD card emulators. Uh, but being in uh, GS port, uh, he's struggling a bit more. So uh, hopefully, you know, he, he mentions Apple Talk as, as one possible option. He mentions Marinetti a few times, though he doesn't uh, quite seem to know what it is. Uh, so he mentions the TCP IP stack and some things like that. So hopefully he gets it all sorted out. Um, and uh, uh, he uh, there's a long YouTube comment thread there about it. So 
hopefully someone uh, jumped in who knew this stuff and filled him in uh, with you know all of the latest because it it does seem clear that he's he's coming at this from the outside so he doesn't know he hasn't been in the community so he doesn't know you know all of the new hardware and tools and stuff that we you know have developed for solving all these types of problems but uh, can't fault him for that um, so hopefully he got some help and has a good experience using his 2GS in 2017 cool yeah he's uh, he's an entertaining guy to watch and his production values are really great so worth uh worth a quick view mm-hmm. uh all right i think that's all of the news items yes i think that's it for news all right uh well uh we have one ebay item this month so let's roll into that look rare steve jobs look what we found on ebay So this is, uh, I, again, I don't know where I came across this, but uh, I got really excited about it. So we've talked a lot about Geos on the show, and uh, we did a whole sh- show dedicated to it a few months ago. We're both big fans of Geos. Uh, tell me if you knew this, Mike. Did you know that there were laptops dedicated to running Geos? I did not. <laughs> I did not know that either. They There's a whole family of these things. They were called Geobooks. And so now I want one. Yeah, so do I. So there, one showed up on eBay a while back, and this one was by a brother, uh, better known for making typewriters and things. And uh, so we'll link to the eBay auction in the show notes. So you can kind of see what one of these things looks like. Uh, so apparently, uh, Geos, after all the 8-bit computers died, they, they didn't give up on their system, and they marketed it to uh, other types of systems. So... Um, you know, listeners probably remember kind of in the like late 90s, there were this category of devices that looked sort of like electric typewriters, but they were kind of dedicated word processors. Um, do you remember those things? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw those yeah, everywhere. So, everywhere for a while. Yeah. Yeah. For people who, who were still a bit scared by computers, uh, but wanted didn't want to use a typewriter, there was this kind of middle ground. So these things are like that. They're sort of like they look a bit like kids' laptops or something, like toys, but they are supposedly for real work. And uh, so these are sort of these special purpose uh, office suite uh, laptop-looking things. And, uh, they, yeah, they run Geos. So uh, it's sort of like a, uh, it's running Geos under the hood, but, you know, this, the UI has been simplified. There's no mouse or anything. It's just like big buttons for selecting things and stuff. Uh, anyway, so we'll link to uh, the auction, and I dug up a site. Uh, you know, for every weird hardware device, there's someone out there who has dedicated their life to the <laughs> to the history and preservation of these things. So uh-huh. there's uh, there's a GeoBook uh, site out there that explains all about them, uh, including how to modify them and how to you know diagnose problems with them. And yeah, it's great. So we'll link to that site as well. Uh, yeah, it's a really fascinating little corner of uh, Geos lore that I had no idea existed. So, yeah, neat stuff. What do you mean? I would never do that with the Apple III. <laughs> <sighs> we already had our Apple III reference. We- oh, yeah, I suppose that's true. All right. Uh, okay, so that's all for eBay, which is good because we don't talk about eBay on this show. Uh, but we do sometimes talk about weird games. We haven't done that in a while, but uh, hey, we got a segment. So let's do the uh, bumper. You know Choplifter, you know Loadrunner, but do you know this? It's time for a weird game. 
So Mike, uh, talk to me about your weird game. Okay, well, those of you who have listened to the show for a while and have suffered through my rants um, probably know that um, I wasn't allowed to play certain Apple II games growing up. Um, my parents are uh, fundamentalist Christians, and they have some hmm, what I would consider odd beliefs about certain things, and that translated into me not being allowed to play games like Ultima and Wizardry and anything with magic or dragons or fun. And um, there was a, a title that I had completely forgotten about, actually, until recently, um, called Might and Magic, which uh, was actually a fairly popular game, I think, on the Apple II. Did you ever play that, Quinn? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay. I was really into that game. Yeah, so this is this is one of the games that I was not allowed to play because it had the word magic in the title. And uh, hmm. But uh, just recently, I've been spending um, w- uh, way too much time and more money than my wife would like over on uh, GOG.com, <laughs> Good Old Games. And uh, in addition to... Um, you know, I think they've got a bunch of – may have a bunch of the old Sierra and Lucasfilm titles, and uh, you can get um, some of the <clears> – <throat> you can get some of the uh, Ultima games as well. They also uh, have Might and Magic, and I um, I think you can get the first – you can get the first six games. They have the six-pack limited edition for $9.99, um, and I think that's just for the Windows version of it. I mean – and I, I bought it and played it a little bit. And, of course, that just made me want the Apple II version because it reminded me that I was playing the crappier PC version. <laughs> but I've, I've really been getting into to this game recently. Um, I've just, I'm still on the first, uh, the first of like seven or eight that they ended up producing over the years. It's a, uh, um, a, front, a forward-looking POV on everything. So it sort of feels like the Bard's Tale, but the scale is much larger. You've got, you know, several... Um, towns that you can explore in a huge outdoor area and it it feels very much at first like a you know the sword swinging um medieval fantasy type thing but as you play the game you begin to discover that it's a whole lot more than that and there's some science fiction stuff that shows up later um that that i'm exploring but i I was surprised at at how deep and how many um how deep and, and well designed this whole game is there's hours and hours of, of play. And so if you've never sat down and played through this, um, I highly recommend it. Yeah, the, I played a lot of the original, uh, the first Mind Magic on, on the Apple II, and it really was, it was a great game. It was kind of like like Bard's Tale 3, but sort of around the Bard's Tale 1 era, mm-hmm. where, as you said, it was it was basically Bard's Tale gameplay, but it had a lot more scope. There was a lot of wilderness uh, exploration and, and that kind of thing happening. So uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, I agree. Those are great games worth revisiting. Uh, I have a sort of a weird career crossover with Might and Magic. Uh, <laughs> okay. For for a while, kind of at the turn of the millennium, there I, I worked at uh, 3DO, and 3DO oh, had right. aqu- yeah, and they had acquired the Might and Magic IP after uh, what was the what was the name of the company that originally well, started those games? It was um, um, oh, hang on. It had a very fantastical sounding name. Uh, I forget what it was. New. Yes, uh, new, new New World Computing. That was it. New World Computing. Thank you. Our our listeners are all screaming at their iPods. <laughs> yes. New World Computing. <laughs> uh, yeah. So they had acquired uh, uh, Might and Magic uh, from New World Computing, and uh, New World Computing. They made a lot of really awesome stuff back in the day. They were kind of the the Westwood or the Bullfrog of their day. Uh, but uh, anyway, so uh, 3DO made the series of uh, of Heroes of Might and Magic games, uh, yeah. the kind mm-hmm. of the more a little bit more actiony third person kind of versions of the of the game. 
And uh, I was actually originally hired at 3DO with the prospect of working on the Heroes of Might and Magic series uh, because I was really into that series and I was really excited to start work on that game. And then on my first day, I found out I was not getting put on that project (laughs) and I got put on this other game I was not interested in working on and uh, never did get to work on it. So that was kind of a letdown. But uh, anyway, so aside from, you know, uh, that little professional deception, I have very fond memories (laughs) of that whole franchise. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. And, um, you know, we mentioned New World Computing. Apparently, so the game was written by um, uh, a guy named John Van Can, Can- John something. Um, and he, um, he he could not find anyone who would market this, market and publish this game for him. And so he s- started New World Computing on his own. And for a while, I guess it was just him doing distribution out of his own apartment until he hmm. made enough money to to uh, uh, attract Activision's attention. And that's when things really, I guess, uh, took off for him. So, but yeah, there was, they published, uh, there were seven or eight titles, or I guess what what you might consider classic titles. And and I think they're, are they still pumping out versions now? Like they're on to like nine or 10, something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I I don't know what the current status of that, uh, that IP is now that both New World and 3D are gone. I don't know if someone still owns that or, or what's going on. But uh, anyway, yeah. cool. Well, thanks for thanks for bringing that one up. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I highly recommend it. Cool. All right, uh, let's move on to some feedback. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. So we've got a, just a couple of emails this month. Uh, first one is from uh, listener Brian. Uh, he writes to tell us, uh, I'm a month behind on listening to all the podcasts that I subscribe to. I was just listening to the February podcast when you were talking about Soft Talk Volume 1, Number 3. Uh, you quickly talked about the ad for Howard Software Services, Howard Soft, where they were offering three products, Tax Preparer, Real Estate Analyzer, and Stock Portfolio Manager. I'm sure I said uh, something snarky and unfair about them. <laughs> Uh, Brian goes on to say uh, they are still in business as Howard Soft and they are still selling their tax preparer software. Oh God, wow. You can visit their software at howardsoft.com, which is awesome. And mm. uh, I could have found that out if I'd spent eight seconds Googling. <laughs> uh, so thanks for filling us in on that, Brian. Uh, Brian says, uh, I started using Howard Soft's tax preparer back in the 80s on my Apple II and then my 2GS. At some point, Howard Soft started offering their software for PCs uh, as well as Apple IIs and then uh, when the Macintosh came out, they decided to ignore that uh, platform. Uh, rather, they modified their MS-DOS software to run within Windows, and eventually the market for their software running on Apple II died, and so they just ended up offering the Windows version. And uh, so when that happened, uh, I had to get the I had to get Windows to run an emulation on my Mac first with Virtual PC, and these days with Parallels. Wow, that's dedication. Yeah. Uh, their tax preparer software is marketed to professional tax preparers. Uh, that's why we haven't heard of it. Uh, though I still use it to prepare my own taxes. It costs me a little over $100 to get the yearly update each year. Uh, so that's that's really cool. He's been using Howard Soft's tax preparer software continuously uh, since the early 1980s, which is fantastic, uh, going so far as to run the Windows version in parallels uh, just to keep using it. Uh, so <laughs> that's I love that story. Thanks for sharing that, Brian. That's yeah. really, really cool. I can't think of any other software that anyone could have been using continuously since 1980. I mean, maybe WordPerfect, something like that, but uh, or possibly Word, if you're willing to go a little bit later. But uh, yeah, that's that's great stuff. <laughs> so uh, good on you, Howard, for <laughs> continuing yeah. to make your software. 
Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I guess you know we we made fun of Howard Soft, this company that probably no one's heard of, but uh, <laughs> uh, little did we know that that he survived while so many other you know big name companies are all long gone. Yep, we we make fun of a lot of things on this that we probably shouldn't, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true enough. Yeah, yeah, I know he's got a got a great niche there. Well, in fact, uh, Jim Sammons had uh, wrote in previously about. A similar ad that we had, had uh, poo pooed a little bit. It's a bit of a long email, so so I'll save it for for next time. But it's a fascinating story, and it's just a reminder that that what you hear on here probably isn't fact all the time. So <laughs> because yes. as, as Quinn said, if either of us had had bothered to Google for eight seconds, we'd have would have known this. So yes, yes, don't get your news from us because we are just two <laughs> two idiots with microphones. That's right. Open Apple is proof that the barrier to entry for podcasting is embarrassingly low. <laughs> low, low, low. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving right along. Uh, listener uh, Tom Porter, who uh, writes us in uh, fairly often. Uh, he's mm-hmm. doing lots of great stuff with audio. Uh, we've talked a little bit about that in recent episodes. He's been working on, he did a MIDI converter thing for the Mockingboard, which is really cool. He did that. Uh, he's been working on an audio engine that you can run out of Aux memory on 2Es that's uh uh, almost behaves like uh, like an interrupt-driven, you know, uh, multi-threaded audio system, but for the Apple II, which has neither threads nor <laughs> interrupts, so that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so we talked a bit about uh, last month about uh, Dogfighters of Mars, and <clears throat> he had put out uh, a version of it with his cool audio engine, and I think we credited it. Uh, it's a double low-res game. I think we credited it to him, uh, and actually he writes in to let us know it was made by Brian Peachy. So, uh, yes, <laughs> shame on us. We should have been on the that. show. <laughs> Yes, Brian has been on the show. We've talked about Brian's other games, uh, Retro Fever and some of the other ones lots. So uh, yeah, we definitely should have known that. Uh, Our apologies to Brian on that one. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so let's see. Listener Kevin writes in to say, uh, Hi, Open Applers. The podcast is wonderful. Uh, I have a question and would appreciate your input. I purchased the Assembly Lines book by Chris Torrance to learn Apple II assembly, specifically for a low-resolution game idea. The book focuses on high-resolution graphics. Do you know of a good book explaining low-resolution in assembly? Uh, That is an excellent question. Uh, I will put that to our listeners. I don't know of a specific book that explains it. Um, I don't know if it's covered in any of the other books. I believe, uh, uh, for example, the book that Michael Packard mentioned, uh, the arcade game design is also all high res. Um, so I'm not sure. Now, the thing about low res, I will say is that it's actually very simple. Uh, you know, there's so few pixels that, and it's just sits in the text page. So, uh, of memory. So it's actually the, and the memory map is a lot more sane than high res. So it's actually pretty straightforward. I think if you learn how to like, say, let's say, learn how to draw text, uh, uh, anywhere on the screen with uh, assembly and then read like the red book or something that explains the low res memory map, then uh, I think you're, you're basically on your way. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. There's, uh, I believe there's um, two pixels per byte, each is four bits and that's your 16 colors. So it's, there's no palettes or anything like in high res, there's no weird high bit stuff or anything, no bit shifting required. It's just direct uh, four bit color. So uh, pretty straightforward to code for. Um, but if anyone knows of either a book or maybe an old Roger Wagner column or something like that that we might be able to uh, link Kevin to, uh, write in and uh, let us know. Yeah, we'll be happy to share. Yeah, uh, that's all the feedback I have. Uh, any from your side, Mike? Um, I don't think, oh, well, yeah, I, I do have one. Uh, we'd mentioned uh, Dr. Weirich earlier in the show talking about the, the, the history of viruses and that sort of thing. Uh, he also wrote in to let us know because we, we had talked about um, – 
the 40th anniversary of uh, the Apple II, and we were wondering why it was April when they didn't start selling it until June, that sort of thing. And he wrote in to let us know that uh, some people are calling April the 40th anniversary of the Apple II. It is the 40th anniversary of the West Coast Computer, the first West Coast Computer Fair, where the first prototypes of the two were demonstrated. But the product itself was not available for shipping until May uh, 10th, 1977 for the motherboard-only versions and June 10th, 1977 for the full system, including a case, keyboard, power supply, etc. In my opinion, to say that the Apple II was released in April of 77 is like saying the Commodore PET was available in January 77 when it was introduced at CES. It was not available for purchase until October, and the TRS-80 was not available until August 77. So a little clarification on dates. Thank you, Dr. Steve. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I would feel better about calling that, was it June 10th when you could order the one with the case? Yes. Uh, I would sort of feel like that, calling that the, the sort of the real start date, because yeah, that's that's the Apple II that anyone would recognize uh, and could actually buy. So that seems like a reasonable date. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. No doubt people will be arguing about that until the end of time. Yeah, we're going to get a bunch of, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, feel free to email us about that and tell us how wrong we are about that and everything else. Uh, we, we get a lot wrong here. And we always like to hear about it. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> or if you have any other thoughts, feel free to write to us. Uh, feedback at open-apple.net. And, and with that, I think that's all we've got to talk about this month. Mike, any closing thoughts? Uh, just that, um, you know, if you appreciate what we're doing here, um, we'd love if you helped out with our uh, Patreon, the money that uh, is donated there goes towards uh, hosting and bandwidth entirely. We don't uh, run ads and you're not missing out um, on anything by not contributing. But if you do, then feel good about yourself and uh, we thank you and love you. Yes, for sure. Yeah, uh, it's worth mentioning again that uh, we uh, we have a high quality audio uh, production here and uh, we have no ads and we have the entire back catalog of the show always available, which uh, those those features cost us actual cash money. So your support is much appreciated. We will link to the Patreon in the show notes as always, and it's always available on our website, open-apple.net. Uh, all right. Well, thanks again for podcasting with me, Mike. Thank you. And we'll see everybody next month. Yeah, and uh, thanks to uh, Michael for coming on and telling us about uh, Alien Downpour. Yes, go pre-order now. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Okay, before we get to Gary and our other guests, we're going to take you inside a computer to see exactly what the operating system does. Hello, can I help you? Yeah, where are we? Well, you're standing inside an Apple IIe microcomputer. And who are you? I'm Bruce Tognazzini. I'm an engineer with Apple Computer, and I'm here to check out and make sure everything is perfect on this computer because we have a report that uh, in just a few seconds here, one of our owners is going to be turning this computer on. And what is all this stuff? Well, these are the parts that make up an Apple Computer. Uh, that particular chip that you're standing on oh, there I'm is sorry. called a <laughs> microprocessor, and it's uh, the pretty much the heart of the computer, kind of the moderator of the talk show that goes on. And these two chips down here, these are very important ROM chips, which have the built-in basic language and the very kernel of the operating system. And then these eight chips out here are the RAM chips, and they hold the information that comes in from the disk drive and that the user types and the programs and so forth. Bruce, we're trying to figure out what an operating system does, and maybe you could help explain it. Well, sure. An operating system essentially runs the entire computer once it's come in, but right now it hasn't turned on all of it. I see the user's about to flick on the switch. It's all right. It's only about 12 volts. The power light goes on, and then the little microprocessor here has the job of checking itself out and then turning control over to this ROM chip. 
This ROM chip, in turn, has a very small program which goes back to the back of the computer and checks out and sees whether it can find a disk controller card, which, of course, it can because there's one plugged in here. And on the disk controller card is another ROM, and this ROM now takes control from that one and begins to bring in the disk operating system off the disk drive through this white cable. You probably saw the disk drive while you were on your mm -hmm. way in here. And then that comes down and starts filling in these RAM chips here. Fills up about a fifth to a quarter of the RAM chips with the disk operating system. It brings in any language and perhaps any program the user wants to do. And after about 15 to 30 seconds, it's all done. The screen gives a message to the user, and then the user can go to work. Okay, well, I've got to get back to the Computer Chronicles. Thanks a lot. Certainly. Thank you. Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net.